Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Bree, and such an honor today. Author Brenda Novak is joining me. Miss Brenda, thank you for being here. I'm. It's just such an honor for you to be joining me today. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Well, I mean, you're a pretty big deal to me, and I'm sure to like most of the listeners, but for anyone who may, for some reason, not know who you are, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Um, I Well, I've been in the business a while, I can tell you that. I started with my first book in November of 1999, so this is my 25th year since I signed my first publishing contract, so it's a bit of a milestone for me. The book that just came out, The Seaside Library, is actually my 75th book, so double milestones there. Um, I'm a mother of five. I started writing when I caught my daycare provider drugging my children with cough syrup and Tylenol to get them to sleep all day. While I read I that online and I hoped it wasn't true, but okay. <laughs> yes, yes, it was definitely true. But it was a woman who belonged to my church. She would come over. I mean, she was in home daycare. It wasn't at a daycare place. And so she would, you know, she did so many fun things with them and she acted like she loved them. I believed it. She came over after hours. She joined us for holidays. She spent a lot of the money we paid her, even on the kids. And so I was just shocked. It came out of nowhere for me. But then, of course, certain things began to make sense where I was like, oh, that's why this happened. And that's why that happened. And, and I felt terrible um, because, you know, mother's guilt, you're your children's last line of defense. So this is the last thing you want to have happen when you feel like, you know, they're your responsibility and the loves of your life. And, and you let this happen somehow get past you. So I quit my job to stay home with them, but I needed to do something to earn a living. Um, and so I was, my sister had sent me a good book. It was Jude Devereaux's Night in Shining Armor. And back then I didn't even know really what a genre was. I mean, I was just very green. I read widely, but I didn't pay attention to genre. It wasn't important to me. I just read whatever I liked, caught my attention. And so I was reading this time travel romance and I just thought, this is wonderful. And I remember closing it thinking, I wonder if I can do this. This is something I can do at home while I watch my kids. So I started the next day determined to write a historical set in England. Wow. Okay. So tell me about your journey to getting published. Yeah. Well, I was, um, it was at a time when I, you know, I was having these little kids. I had three of them. I had two more after and the internet wasn't quite what it is today. It wasn't anything mm -hmm. like what it was today. It was just getting started. And so you couldn't use it for research or you could barely use it to connect with other people. I remember making a friend in England on some forum. Um, anyway, so th there was nothing on it. You couldn't use that. So I would have to wait for my husband who was working very hard to save his business. He's a big risk taker and I'm risk averse. Mm -hmm. So you know how they say opposite attract. He was doing very <laughs> Sounds like well. me and my husband. <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it seems to work out that way. Um, but uh, I was, he was, you know, doing great at commercial real estate. And he came to me and said, I want to become a residential developer. And I was like, no, 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 no. There's so much risk involved in that. Like, no, we're, we're young and we've got this brand new family. And, and he said, well, what if instead of doing spec building, I pre-sold them all. And I thought, oh yeah, like that takes the risk out of it. So as long as you, you know, pre-sell them, the homes are sold. When you start building them, we're good. Uh, but even that didn't work because the market just totally fell apart. So by the time he could get the homes, he had 30 of them in various stages of construction. When he could get the, by the time he could get them finished, the appraisals, the market had dropped so far that the appraisals were coming in below our cost. Oh my gosh. And you only have two choices in that instance. You can 
sell that, you know, keep it as a rental, but you have temporary financing. So that's not very viable or you can sell it at a loss. And so he was just working night and day trying to, you know, make enough money to cover its losses. And, and it was, so, and here I am at home feeling like I can't help. And so he would come home at the end of the day and it'd be late, you know, like eight and he would left before I got up and, you know, I'd shove whatever kids were um, awake at him and I'd run down to Sac State Library and research, get, do the research. So it took me five years because I not only had to teach myself the craft, I had to teach myself everything about the, the era in which I was writing. Um, so I should have written contemporary. That's this, the moral of that story. But anyway, um, so that took a while to finish a manuscript. And I was just out on my own. I didn't know one other person who was doing it. I wasn't aware of any writing organizations. I had no contacts in publishing. So once I finished this 800-pound behemoth, or 800-page <laughs> behemoth, it was way too long. Um, I, you know, lift my head up at that point to think, okay, what do I do with it now? And luckily someone, um, it was a person that I had lunch with. She was a member of my church. I'm no longer religious, but this was at the time. And so I met with her and she said, have you ever heard of romance writers of America? And I said, I hadn't. And she said, you know, cause she had read it for me, which was very nice. She goes, this is good. You should, you should look them up and go. And so I showed up um, I think it was, it was definitely in Texas, but I don't remember if it was Dallas or Houston that year. And, um, I was five months pregnant with my fifth child and I had this big manuscript that I wanted to sell. And that's when I realized, of course, that it was way too long and it wasn't focused enough to even really be considered a historical romance. It was more kind of a, just a straight historical with some romance in it. And so I knew I had to make changes, but I was so excited because, I had found my tribe. I knew that I could get the connections and information that I needed to get published through this avenue, which had previously, I hadn't even known existed. So I came home just so high. Like it took me months to come down. I was so excited. And I rewrote that manuscript and, and made it a spelt 430 pages and submitted it to the Golden Heart. And it finaled. And um, so that was uh, definitely a leg up. Uh, my aunt, I, we had no money. We were go, still going through the this turbulent aftermath of the loss of his business and our home. And, and so we were just, you know, still trying to make ends meet. And my aunt heard that I thought, oh, it was his aunt, actually, our aunt Chani, heard that um, I wasn't going to get to go because it would cost about $2,500. I just couldn't take that away from the family. And she sent me a check for that amount. Oh, my so gosh. Yeah, which was so nice. It came out of nowhere. I, I hadn't even talked to her. Ted must have mentioned it. And so I was able to attend and I didn't final, but it definitely helped me to get an agent that year who sold that manuscript to HarperCollins. And that became Of Noble Birth, which is what came out in November of 99. That is, okay, five years, first and foremost, is amazing because I can I can easily see a lot of writers just giving up like you know life circumstances or whatever like where did that determine was it everything coming around you was it that that mother instinct of like I have to do something I have kids like where did that motivation to keep going for the five years and then even after like revising and all of that like where did it where do you think it stemmed from I'm just, I think I'm a very driven person once I set my sights on something, like I, I won't give up until I get there. And I think that that persistence has always served me well in whatever I have tried. I think that those five years went quickly as well, because I was having those two other children and had mm -hmm. a lot to do family wise. Um, and I also feel like once I started writing, I loved it so much that I felt like this was the silver lining to our dark time. Like I remember going to bed at night thinking, 
but my book is good. Like I love what I'm doing. And, and it was so exciting to find those precious moments when I could actually work on it. Cause you know, even, even staying at home with kids doesn't mean you're, you're free to work. You, yeah. you have a lot you have to do to take care of them. So it was difficult to find those precious moments um, to be able to work. And I had a lot to learn in that short time. So just a lot of balls in the air. So it took a long time, but I am very persistent person and a very driven person. And so I was going to finish um, come hell or high water. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it. I could. I can. I can totally imagine it. Like I've been a stay-at-home mom since 2019 now, and I can totally imagine it also evolving into like the thing you kind of sneak away and do for yourself. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it was. I would almost count the minutes until it was nap time because that was my hour and a half, you know, that I had to myself. Um, but of course getting them all to sleep at the same time, that isn't always easy. Oh, yeah. so, you know, you have these precious hour here, maybe an hour there that you could actually do something. Um, and so it did, it did take time, but I remember, um, just how much I loved what I was learning, what I was doing and feeling as though, you know, I'd found the thing I wanted to do the rest of my life, whether I ever sold a book or not, I absolutely loved the creativity involved in it. I have to ask. And then I promise we're going to get into all of my crazy questions about the Seaside Library. But you wrote quite a few books for Harlequin's Super Romance line. How did that happen? Well, actually, I probably would have been a one book wonder if not for one decision that I made. And I'm still kind of shocked I made the decision. So this, you know, I just got off tour for two months and it, it gave me a chance to reflect and talk about various turning points in my career. And this one is a huge one. I actually, after I sold Of Noble Birth, it was coming out in November of 99. But before that, they only bought it on a one book contract. And so I didn't know if, you know, my longevity with them would last, but I turned in two more manuscripts, proposals, and my editor loved them and said, as soon as I get back from um, vacation, we'll go to contract. So I thought my historical career was on track. Well, she goes to Europe for a couple months. I go to this um, mini conference in Utah, Park City, Utah. I don't even know why I did it. It's like 12 hours from where I live, but I do, I am from there. So um, I was born there. So we go back there occasionally. Anyway, so I decided to do this conference and there was only about 30 women there and there was only one editor, but her name was Paula Eichelhoff and she edited the Harlequin super romance line. I had never read a super romance, but I had read many little Harlequins when I was in high school. Um, And I, at this point, had no intention of ever writing um, contemporary. Mm -hmm. So I, but when she said she was taking pitches, I'm kind of the type of person that tries to prevent failure by taking advantage of what I can take advantage. Because if something bad happens to me that I had no control of, I feel much worse than if something bad happens to me that I could have avoided. (laughs) (laughs) I decided I was going to pitch her something because she was taking pitches. So um, it was a group pitch. There was like eight of us. I thought of an idea. I went in um, with the others and we pitched it. And I felt like I did a very poor job. I was scared. I was new. Um, but Paula was very patient and kind, and she would draw us back to the real thread of the story and ask questions so you could tell she was actually listening and she wasn't just phoning it in and, you know, was kind to these scared newbies. And so I, after I got home, I saw her name in a trade journal, the RWR, and it reminded me of this woman and how kind she'd been. And so I just sent her a thank you note in a box of C's saying, thank you for being so kind to newbies. And, and I never even intended to write contemporary. So I thought that would be the end of it. Well, she called me up once she got it. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, this is like back then you couldn't self-publish. So if you couldn't get in through the gatekeepers, those manuscripts just languished under your bed and all that time and effort was wasted. So it was like getting a call from God and, you know, cause they had that much power over your dreams. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I was, you know, dry mouthed and sweating and like, oh, what do I say? What do I say? And she said, are you ever going to turn in that manuscript that you pitched me? And I said, um, you know, I knew what the right answer was. So I said, yes. And um, she said, well, I can't, I can't buy anything with firefighter hero because I already have somebody doing firefighters, but do you have any other ideas? And again, I knew the right answer. So I said, uh, yes. <laughs> and I was just praying she wouldn't ask me for those ideas right away because I had nothing, not one thing. And she said, well, write, write up, you know, a one page summary of your ideas and we'll get together and you can pitch them to me at breakfast at RWA at the next RWA. And I was just shocked that she had handed me this golden opportunity. So I was thrilled at the same time. So I started trying to think up ideas and I did five one page synopses and I met her at RWA and she chose her favorite of the five and she bought it as expectations, which was my first super romance and my second book. And why that turned out to be so important is because when my other editor at Harper Collins came back, she came back to a pink slip. So that meant she lost her job and oh my gosh. I lost my slot. I didn't even have a book out yet. I was, you know, Brenda who, what was happening was Harper Collins was buying Avon and what they wanted was their romance department. So they fired all their own romance editors and most of their romance authors, keeping only the big names and moving them to a new editor. So I, you know, that was the end before my book ever came out. I was basically had already lost my job in the historical romance um, area. So fortunately, because of Paula, I was able to segue into writing contemporary and she bought everything I could produce for the next 20 plus years, over 60 books. Wow. So it was a very fortuitous decision yes. um, <laughs> to attend that conference to pitch to her and to thank her. Oh my God. The stars just aligned or something. That is, that's amazing. Shout out. Yeah. To I owe her a lot. She's, she's amazing. She's always very kind and steady and um, and between that turning point and, and then how I broke back into single title, um, those were kind of the two big ones in my career. Yeah, because you're bibli- like you you have a lot of romantic suspense. Like, where do you think that came from? Did you did you read a lot of mysteries? Um, I just like books with a strong conflict. Okay, and so suspense has one of the strongest conflicts to me. That's what a page turner is. You're conflict is what drives the engine of your story and you race forward, you know, to turn pages when it's a big conflict. Like, I don't know if you think of Game of Thrones or Outlander, like there's so much conflict in those, um, which I love. So that and my books also have a lot of conflict so that, um, so I do drift towards suspense a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I actually, how I ended up in romantic suspense was I was writing, this, this brings me to the second turning point I was talking about. I was writing for super romance and I wanted to break back into single title Um, But I didn't know how to do it because once um, an editor has a stable of authors that she's groomed and she trusts, you know, she's not going to be really excited if you go off and publish for a different program. Um, So I knew Paula wouldn't probably be super excited to see me do this. But I really, really wanted to have a book out on the shelf that lasted longer than a month and that could grow my career. Um, and so I thought, I know I'll write such a good book. They'll just have to recognize it as a single title. (laughs) This was my plan. So I pitch it to, um, my agent and Paula at conference and they both say, okay, yeah, write it. So I go (laughs) home and I write it and I loved it. I thought it was the best thing I'd written so far. I was super excited about it. 
And so I turn it into my agent and she calls me up and I get this voice on the other end of the phone that says, Brenda, this is a prison book. Oh gosh. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it was a prison book when I pitched it to you. Were you not listening? Yeah. <laughs> prison means like I was flabbergasted and she goes, it's dark. And I'm thinking, well, to her, obviously, dark is bad, right? To me, it was suspense. So I'm thinking, yeah, I like that strong conflict. And so, but, it, you know, I was new enough still that it devastated me because I thought, oh, here I thought it was good and it's terrible. You know, obviously, if your agent says it's terrible, it's terrible. So I thought, oh, wow, I blew it. I wasted all this time. And, you know, so I'm in tears and I call Paula and I say, I'm not even going to submit this. It's terrible. You'll hate it. Karen hates it. And um, she said, Brenda, I'm the person who buys your books, not your agent. Send it to me. So I sent it to her with very little hope. And sure enough, she loved it so much that she passed it all around the publisher. I had people coming up to me at the next RWA conference whom I'd never met. I didn't know their names previous to this, and they certainly didn't know mine. I should have known theirs because I was writing for the publisher. But, um, you know, they were just so far up. I, I wasn't paying much attention. And um, they said, I, we just read your book. We love it. We're going to turn it into a single title. Um, we're going to invite you to sales conference and have you speak. And and so I was, you know, I did get the break I was hoping for, but it came as a, a big shock because, you know, my agent hadn't even liked the book. She wanted romantic comedy, which is something I don't write. Um, and so it, it was just kind of an interesting twist of fate. And so luckily Paula did recognize it for what it was and everybody at Harlequin loved it. And they did turn it into a single title that was called Taking the Heat. And then I had the opportunity to write more single titles um, that led me down the same road, which is how I got into romantic suspense. Your books do have some of the most like standout conflict that I've ever read. Was that something that you feel like you taught yourself that you had to learn? Was it like an overtime thing? Was it from reading? Like, where do you think that that stemmed from? I think I think it was from my tastes in reading and sort of uh, your own intuition as a writer. I know that in the beginning, I could not read how to write books because it took everything that I did unconsciously or subconsciously rather <laughs> and schlepped it all over to the conscious side. So then you're juggling so many balls, you, you, you just freeze up and can't write. So I'd start to write, oh, no, no, that's passive language or, oh, no, no, you know, I, I, that's POV switch in the middle of a scene. So once you start limiting yourself, it makes it harder and harder to just spill it out on the page. And so I decided I would learn from example and from what I loved to read and turn off these voices that were giving me all these rules and how to. Now I can read those books and enjoy them because I feel like I have enough experience. I can apply and learn from them without being overwhelmed and frozen by them. So for anybody that's listening, that's writing, give us like one piece of advice on writing a strong conflict or how to know if the conflict isn't strong enough. Oh gosh, that's sort of a feeling you can tell. And even as a reader, you can tell as you're reading. Um, like I, I read a book once where this was very obvious, where it was a hero and a heroine where the, I could see why the initial conflict would work and be fun at first. She didn't, you know, their, their families were at odds with each other, but they had never had any personal interaction. It, this went back a generation or two. And so I could see, oh, you know, that's one of those, you know, whatever the name was of that family. I don't like him. But then this writer had that carry, try and carry the whole book. And it just gets, it gets repetitive. Mm. It gets slow. It starts making you roll your eyes because you're like, oh my gosh, she's got to forgive him by now. He isn't even the one who did it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so you're like, 
are you kidding me? So that type of reaction, you can feel it as a reader and as a writer, you can feel it too. Like if you're starting to get bogged down, you can, you, you probably need a change because conflict needs to grow and evolve as well as your characters. Like you don't want typically in most books, you'll start out with a conflict, but then it has to breathe and grow too. So that that's how you keep those pages turning. Right. So with me, I always start with what the conflict is in any book. That's the only way I know how to do it because that to me is I'm finding something I'm interested in writing about. Then I look at what characters would be most challenged by this conflict. And then as I write, I kind of write by the seat of my pants and let the plot grow out of this conflict mixed with these characters. So that's just my process. That that probably won't work for everyone because everybody has to respect their own process. But I just always come up with what I consider a delicious conflict. And that's what makes me want to dive in and start to write. These these books that you've been releasing. So we have the Seaside Library this summer. Um, the we had the the bookstore on the beach. We had one perfect summer, which were both just as amazing. How did we get into this lane of like I don't even know how you would like how you describe these books? Like Seaside Library was a fun twist on like a murder mystery, but they're all three, like also kind of women's fiction-y. Like how did we get in this lane that we're currently in? You know, I I wish I knew. I don't really know. (laughs) I think your writing is just an extension of what you love to read. And so I, I put in my stories, things I would find intriguing. So, you know, these are, I do tend to blend genres, which makes it a challenge for my publisher, because if it was just plain old women's fiction and not as in that boring, just meaning that's, you know, pure women's fiction. If it was just pure women's fiction, I, that's how I should state it. Then it'd be easy to put a cover on it. Mm-hmm. If it was a romance or a, a mystery, like these are easily defined genres, but when you mix them all together, then it's difficult to represent that book with a cover adequately and attract the right readers. So that has been the challenge that I have faced almost from the beginning of my career, because I've always sort of balanced my, my romance has always drifted toward women's fiction. And now that I am writing women's fiction, of course, I still have elements of romance and mystery and sometimes suspense um, that filters in into the story. And see, I love the, I think that's why I love these books because I, I do love women's fiction, but I need something else. And so this, this balance of the suspense and the women's fiction is just perfect for me. I feel like, um, can yeah. you share with us, like, give us an elevator pitch for the Seaside Library? It's about three friends. I, you know what? It sort of explores themes of loyalty mm-hmm. versus integrity. And that is such a push pull in this book between all the characters that that's really essentially what it's about. It's about three friends who um, have grown up on this island and they're very close because they're year rounders. And this is an island that has, you know, a big influx of tourists that, you know, like 90,000, the population swells to like 90,000 and then goes down to like 10. So just a huge difference. So these young kids would almost feel like nothing is is stable in their life. All the friends that they make uh, or, or nothing lasts, I should say. I mean, they would have the stability of their families depending on their families. But anyway, so, you know, they would be especially close and be wanting to protect each other. So when one of the three friends, the male member, is the last person to interact with a 12-year-old girl who goes missing, they step right up to, you know, their loyalty demands that they give him an alibi. They know he could never do this. But of course, 20 years later, when the girl's body is found and certain other things come to light, even they have to question whether they made the right decision. And it just kind of explores how, you know, sometimes we make decisions that we don't know we're going to have to live with the whole our whole lives. And 
maybe we will rethink those. But then if they come forward and do what they think is probably right, which is come forward and tell the truth, an innocent person could go to prison for the rest of his life simply because their lie will make him look more guilty. So they have a lot of difficult decisions to face. So it's about friendship and loyalty and integrity. And um, and of course, it has the mystery running through it as well. Our three friends are Ivy, Ariana, and Cam. What were you like? Okay, this book is so bonkers in the best way possible. Like, I have to know first. I, I was thinking, it hit me days later. I was like, this kind of I like I was a kid in like the 90s or teenager in the early 2000s. I was like, this kind of reminds me of I know what you did last summer, like these group of teens, something Um, happened, you know, and like that what if of like the the, the secret that they carry with them. Like, how did these three how did the story come to you? Was it the 12 year old girl? Was it the friendship? Like, how did it come to you? Well, I knew I wanted to write about three friends because, you know, beach read, you know, friendship's always a lovely theme for the summer and you get away with your friends. And so I knew I wanted to write about three friends, but I didn't want it to be just three girlfriends. I wanted to mix it up a little because I thought, you know, if you threw a male member in there, especially if one of them ever had romantic feelings for that other person, it would really make the friendships, there could enter jealousy, there could, you know, I mean, it could really mix things up. So that's probably where I started with it. But I also like the element of, you know, how far would you go for that friendship? Um, Mm -hmm. What would you do? And so I love books about people who make the wrong decision, but for the right reason. And so um, I wanted the reader to be able to identify with what Ariana and Ivy do, even though it may not be technically, you know, what we believe to be right. Like you should always come forward and tell the truth to the police. In the beginning, I'd say the first couple of chapters, there's, I I think it's the the first chapter we get from Cam's perspective. I was like, I don't know. The way that you ended it, I was like, did he do it? (laughs) (laughs) So like when you started, when you started it, did you know, like, did you know how the ending was going to be? Or was there anything plot wise that kind of took you by surprise? No, I never know the ending of my books because I I guess I get easily bored. And if I knew, if I plotted it out ahead of time or wrote an outline, I'd feel like I was already told that story and I'm just done with it. And I find that if I'm bored with my work, then it just goes emotionally flat and you lose all that delicious tension that makes people want to read forward. And so I can't know. That being said, I was fairly certain Kim would not be guilty, but I wasn't positive. Um, and so it, it did come up where a few times I'm thinking, Ooh, it would be interesting. Should he really be the one who did it or not? Um, so it, it played out in my mind the same way it did the readers where I wanted him to be innocent, but I'm thinking, I don't know. I mean, maybe this will be the most logical and exciting conclusion to the book. So I didn't want to limit myself. Yeah. And I think that, um, something you touched on and like, like a, one of the biggest, I think, aspects of the book is as you continue reading the story you really do see how this secret and here it's like it's 20 years later but um holding the secret secrets amongst friends like that's the easiest way to say it like how it is kind of affecting their friendship because like there is a little ariana admits that she has always had this crush on cam and so we slowly start to see them spending time together but it is three of them and so ivy you kind of feel bad for ivy she doesn't really know what's going on. She just knows like my two friends are like hanging out without me. So like, was that something you were aware that you were going to do? Like something kind of has to come between them. 
Um, yeah, I, I just really felt that again, letting that conflict breathe and and take on a different shape. Like at first, you have the doubt whether we should have done this, but then you complicate it a little more when you learn, oh wow, she actually's had feelings for him. So is she doing it because of her feelings for him? And and you know what about like you say, what about Ivy and how that plays into their friendship? So it just sort of escalates the conflict. And I I really, really loved Ivy because Ivy solves like a really important part of the story. So can you, I mean, can you talk about that particular moment for her? Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to do a big reveal in the library because the library is the title of it. And I really felt like it wasn't tying in strongly enough as much as it probably should have. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to have this big reveal in the library, which made it you know, clear that Ivy would be the the one. And plus I felt like she needed more of a, of a job to do since there was probably more page time I felt like for the other two. Um, so I made her an integral part of this, the resolution, um, or a piece of the puzzle I, I gave to her and she discovers it in the library. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just really liked the way how at first, if you were a young, if you were high schoolers and you did something like this, I think it would draw you closer together mm-hmm. um, because you've got this secret and it's, you know, you three against the world. And But then as you go on about your life 20 years later, it would actually probably create fissures and cracks in that friendship because now you're bearing the responsibility for something that you feel guilty of and maybe that you're no longer so sure about. And, and so I just really liked the dynamic of what that could do to a friendship. We have to talk Jewel, okay? <laughs> I Jewel, isn't she? <laughs> I really did not like Jewel. At first I did, but then the more that I even before, you know, you get to the end of the book, I'm like, man, she is really fixated on on this guy. And I think that she is such a wonderfully written character, especially like the further you get into the book because she shows you you showed through her um it's almost like it's a reputation thing. Like it's a, it's a reputation thing, but also like she, I loved when you had her call her dad and her dad's like, you wouldn't do this because blah, 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 blah. Like you gave us the thing. I feel like she told herself, like I, this, I couldn't do something like this. Like listeners, she actually has a, a one night of fun with one of the characters. And so she like, believes these things about herself like I wouldn't do this because of this but we clearly know that she did kind of thing and I think that you show like I think one of the really powerful things that stuck out with me was like the lengths people will go to protect reputation and how I'm supposed to present myself and like this person that I'm supposed to be but I loved that you gave us chapters from her perspective so like what inspired the decision to give us those few those those moments with Jewel I think that those less perfect characters are some of the funnest to write. I just really love getting into the psyche of how a narcissistic person thinks um, and how that would present itself. And, you know, she shows in many instances how how selfish she is. Um, And yet, you know, the fact that she is there to solve the crime um, and, and there to support her parents and all those things, you know, when you're first starting the book, you're reading this and, and that makes her seem quite admirable to be standing up and fighting even all these years later. I think what was interesting, like as you're reading Jules perspective is like, you know, Cam, like Cam has been living his life. Him and Ivy both still, they, they still live on the island and like nobody really treated him any differently. And you kind of have the sense that like the law enforcement are like, 
we don't really have anything <laughs> to like right. stick it to someone. But then you're right. reading from her perspective. And like, obviously her motivation is like, this is my sister. Like, I, I want you guys to, to, to catch somebody. And like, let's, let's end this thing. It's been long enough. Yeah. But like, they're like, oh, we don't really have anything. It's been a really long time. So did you purposely want to make that, that a little bit difficult for her? Well, that, that actually, to me, reads pretty true. I watch a lot of true crime, and it's shocking and saddening to realize that many, many crimes don't get solved simply mm-hmm. because either police aren't motivated enough or they're not capable or, or one or the other. And so in this situation, and I've also learned that unless they have, uh, unless there's family members who dog their heels, I mean, will not give up, push for willing to hire private detectives, whatever. I guess I came into this initially before I started writing suspense with rose colored glasses, thinking the police were all powerful and they would set things right. And they cleaned up crime. And, and then you get into it and you realize that that is not the case. Like I even have a, um, a cousin who is a police officer. And he said, unless, you know, the police have a real reason to grab hold of something, want to go after it. He even had his superiors sometimes telling him, oh, don't mess with that. And he's like, no, I really think I could bust this guy. Like I'm really going for it. So they have to pick and choose. They have limited man hours. They have limited resources. Um, A lot of the people who gravitate uh, to law enforcement, not to put them down because some are very good, but some are not. Some are just phoning it in. They only want to take their paycheck home to their family. Um, They're not super dedicated. And so you get a mix of people, right? Especially at that income level that of what they start at, um, you're not going to get probably the brightest and the best. <laughs> so it's it's very difficult, I feel like, for the police to actually solve a crime. And I am shocked again and again on these these pod, uh, uh, true crime shows where I watch these cold cases and then they go, and lo and behold, they read the file, reread <laughs> the file, and they found the smoking gun. And you're like, that means it was there all the time. That means whoever was doing that 20 years ago Either yeah. was too stupid or too lazy or just didn't care, right? So you're like, how does this work out that they always find the smoking gun in the original investigation but missed it? And yeah. it just happens again and again and again. And so to me, um, that frustration sometimes leaks out, I feel like, in my writing going, hey, folks, the reality of what the police can do is so limited, it's shocking. Yeah. And I feel like their location was kind of an antagonist, too, because they're on, they're on an island. I mean, and the, like there's... I can imagine that the scenes where you give us like where they're like at one point it's Ariana and Cam and then it's Ariana and Ivy. Like they're just digging through sand. And I'm like, that has to be torturous. (laughs) (laughs) That's everybody's dream to be on the beach digging through sand. No. (laughs) So out of the, the, their three out of the three, were was there a favorite character you had to write was there one that was a little bit more difficult like I feel like Cam especially with his wife like you really put Cam through it (laughs) yeah yeah I I just really felt but I but I hope that his wife also came off somewhat sympathetic I mean as as Mm -hmm. difficult of an individual she is it would be very hard to marry somebody that you feel like married you because you were pregnant even if you did it on purpose uh You're thinking, oh, if they'll just realize they love me, maybe. I mean, I'm putting myself in her shoes. And then when she can't ever fully really capture his heart, she can't truly believe, can't truly trust, can't truly feel secure and safe. And that would be an unhappy life, right? So yeah. even though she makes his life unhappy because of this insecurity, it the basic root of the problem is really outside of either of their control because you can't tell yourself who to love, right? He tries to do the right thing. He marries her, but then she has to live with her decision that she yeah. trapped him and now she can't fully believe he loves her. And so I really feel like 
while that's not sympathetic in a way because of her actions, in another way, you can feel like, God, that'd be terrible, right? Yeah, yeah. She was she was a fun character to read. I was like, oh, yeah. Miss Brenda, you are her. really putting Cam through the ringer. Yeah, <laughs> but- he was probably my favorite character because of that, just because of the, compl- the complexity of his relationship with his wife and the decisions he had to make there versus what he had to make um, about, you know, people feeling as though he was guilty of this terrible crime and maintaining these friendships. And um, so he, yeah, he has a lot on his plate. And I, I found him a really interesting character to to imagine and to write about. So can you tell us, like, what are you working on now? Like, what's coming up next from you? Yeah, I actually have, um, I have a lot coming out this next year. I have a my last mass market romance trilogy is coming out. It's um, set in Montana in a fictional town called Coyote Canyon. So Tallulah's Back in Town comes out the end of August. And then The Talk of Coyote Canyon comes out the end of November. And then The Messy Life of Jane Tanner comes out the end of January. So we've got three rapid releases there. And then we've got Tourist Season, which is my next beach read, which comes out next April. It's also set on Mariners, but it's not tightly connected. I mean, the library is obviously there. There and um, an Ivy still works at the library, but the two storylines—it's um, not a continuation or anything. They're they're standalones. But I just really love that setting and that island enough. I wanted to revisit it with my next story. So those are all done and in the pipeline. And I'm currently starting another trade release that'll be out um, in the fall of 2024. And I just started that this week. I just got back off of my my two month long tour for the Seaside Library and. I'm diving into this new book. When you sit down to write, like, are you, um, do you have like a daily writing goal or like, what does the writing look like for you? And like, how are you getting all of these books done? (laughs) Well, I am pretty, like I said, very driven and and determined to reach my goals. So if I set a goal for that day, I I typically meet it, but Mm -hmm. I try to do for this summer, I'm going to have to do six pages a day, five days a week to get close to finishing this book somewhat on time. I used two months of my deadline to do the tour. So I only have three months left. I want to get at least 400 pages done. And then mine always go over. The last one was like 550 pages. I hope it won't be that long because that's a lot of work, but um, you know, 450 probably. So I'll, I'll finish it only maybe a couple weeks late, I'm hoping. Well, last question that I have before we get off of here, like what is something you know now? Like what do you know now that if you could go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career, like what would Miss Brenda now tell Brenda in the beginning? Um, To relax and enjoy the journey. I think that um, sometimes we can be pretty hard on ourselves and the bumps at first were just, some of them were just painful. I had, I had um, St. Martin's offered to buy of noble birth before Harper Collins did. So I thought I had a sell. I had the call. And then um, they had me submit one idea as a follow-up for the second book. I went away on uh, for a weekend, Ted and I um, celebrated. It was our anniversary and thought, okay, I'm going to be a published author. I got the call. And I got back on Monday and the whole deal was off because they didn't like the second book. No, no conversation like, do you have anything else? Or this is what we didn't like. Nothing. It just completely just derailed. And my my agent said, I've never seen anything like that before. You know, of course, I was just destroyed. And and then if you get a bad review when the first book comes out, you know, Ted will come home and be like, I'm laying on the floor almost. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, read this. 
you know, and you just learn to take it with a little bit different perspective when you've been around a long time and you learn that, you know, not every book is for every person. You will get bad reviews. Everybody gets bad reviews. When, to make myself feel better, if I get a bad review, sometimes I'll go on and read the bad reviews of my most favorite books. And I'm always shocked that there can people can be people who don't like them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, I think to sit back and breathe and enjoy the journey, it's, it's really, you know, what do they say? It's not a sprint. It's a, a, a marathon. marathon. Yeah. And so that's really, it, it's a marathon and publishing is like a bucking Bronco, all these metaphors, but, um, it, or similes, that one was a simile. Um, and it was, you know, it, it makes you feel like it's a very difficult business, but it's a very rewarding business. And if it can buck you off, it will. So you have to, I think, do look for ways to prevent that from happening. I think taking your career in your own hands, not just relying on the publisher to promote you, I think is important in that type of thing. Um, because, you know, it, it's ultimately comes down to you and your business. And so I think you have to um, look at it as, as a long journey and take stock of what you're going to need and meet those small goals, which will lead you to the big ones. Can you tell everybody where they can keep up with you online? Do you have a newsletter you want to shout out and all of that? Yeah, yeah, I have um, a newsletter. I have a mailing list. They can sign up on my website, and which is brendanovac.com. I also have um, information about my online book group, which is 26,000 members strong, and they are wonderful, wonderful people. It's such a warm group. Um, we do the Brenda Novak book boxes where we all read the same book for that month. I, I, I sponsor or uh, feature other authors in the months. I don't have a release. So the Brenda Novak challenge, um, reading challenge each year is 12 books and they get autographed copies of the book we're reading that month in the Brenda Novak book box, along with other goodies. Um, we have a, a you know, an online meeting with the author to discuss the book. We have parties. We, we just have a lot of fun things. So people are definitely in, uh, invited to join me. Um, there. We're very active there. Um, and yeah, so just visit brendanovac.com. You can learn all about the books, the book group, and the mailing list. Mm-hmm.